We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. When couples arrive in my office in crisis, there are nearly always problems with boundaries. Sometimes one or both partners have such high boundaries that they seem unreachable. And at other times, the boundaries are so low that they feel so responsible for each other that it's hard to know when one partner begins and the other ends. Despite being such an important topic and on the surface something that's easy to understand, I find a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about boundaries, so I have decided to do a deep dive into the topic. My guests are Graham Johnston and Matt Wooten, who are both psychotherapists and co-directors of the London Centre for Applied Psychology, which offers ongoing personal development courses for therapists. They're also the Director of Policy and Chair of the Bowlby Centre, the UK's leading training institution in attachment-based psychotherapy. So let's start at the very beginning. What are boundaries? So I think, Andrew, we can think about boundaries in a number of different ways. There's the literal sense of a boundary, which is where one thing ends and another begins. So when we think about our physical self, we might think of the skin as the boundary between us, ourselves, and another person. That's one way to think of a boundary. We often think of boundaries in other ways as well, though. So we think of a sporting pitch, a cricket pitch, for example, has a boundary. It defines what is in the scope of play and also, of course, then defines what is outside the scope of play. So in that sense, boundaries, again, are about defining what is within ourselves or within uh, the scope of play and what's outside of ourselves. But then, of course, when we come into relationships, we think of boundaries in a more metaphorical, psychological sense of where do we begin and end as psychological selves? What are our values? What's our sense of self? And where does that begin and end? And what do we need to do to adapt to other people's boundaries. Because of course, when we think about boundaries, we're not just talking about our own personal boundaries. We're talking about the other person's psychological and physical boundaries as well. So thank you. I'll just explain that was Graham talking because I've got two guests today. I don't normally have two guests, but they decided that it'd be better if I had two guests. And my boundary of only having one guest at a time crumbled. We will find out if that's a good idea or a bad idea. But that is another example of boundaries, isn't it, Graham? Very much so. So we, as you say, we've come into your lovely structured podcast and said, no, no, we want to have a conversation amongst us. We want to have a more flexible conversation, maybe, and see where that goes and test out your adaptability, maybe a little bit, and our adaptability to respond to pushing those boundaries a little bit in a new direction and see what happens. One thing I think about boundaries often is that it's the platform for creativity, right? So that the blank canvas is still a canvas. So when you think into the realm of music or sport, the people that we think of as the most creative people in their fields, be it 
Prince or David Bowie in music, for example, spring to mind. They're people that push at the boundaries. They're people that take the boundaries of their field, test it a little bit, manipulate it a little bit, and then put it back together in a new way that speaks to us, partly because we understand those boundaries. So today in our conversation, it'll be interesting to see whether we can help push at the boundaries a little bit and add a bit of creativity and and see where that goes. But it also illustrates another thing about boundaries is that they can be negotiated. We've had a Mm. conversation. You've told me why you think it's a good idea. I've told you about my fears. And we've come to some sort of arrangement that we hope is going to be creative. So this is not a case of being imposed. We've negotiated and we've agreed. And I think that's important thing to understand with boundaries. You can't just unilaterally, well, I suppose you can unilaterally lay them down. But what happens when you do that? I, I think, think that's right, isn't it? So, oh, oh, that's a great example of the boundary. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was going to jump in there, if I may. Welcome, Matt. Please do jump in. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think you set it up nicely, Andrew, when you talked in the beginning. Boundaries are generally really useful in the way that I think Graham was describing, but also cause problems, sometimes cause as many problems as they solve, especially when they're rigid and they're preset. So uh, boundaries don't really exist in the natural world. So everything is interconnected. And I think sometimes boundaries imply that you can lock down and set things that in truth you can't. The reality is that everything comes and goes, ebbs and flows, everything passes. So I think where you were talking a moment or two ago is around those values of adaptability and maybe flexibility, negotiation and compromise. It seems to me that there's something really practical in those ideas of compromise, flexibility, negotiation, but also there's something really fundamental that that sort of underlies the natural order of things that takes us back to those kind of concepts alongside the idea of a boundary. So Let's think particularly about boundaries and relationships because relationships are key to my work. And most people, when I ask them what makes their life meaningful, they talk about relationships as well. So relationships are important in this podcast. So why might we need boundaries in relationships? Let's think about that. And let's think first of all about married couples sort of Mm. kind of relationships. So I think there's a couple of ways that boundaries are hugely important for couples to think about whether they're married or otherwise. One is that aspect that we were talking about right at the beginning of our conversation, Andrew, around it, helping to define ourselves, our sense of self in relationship with other people more generally. Who are we? What do we care about? What do we want from life? And as we move into relationship with another person, what aspects of who we are feel flexible and which aspects of who we are and what we expect from other people feel a little bit more rigid in terms of being closer to, say, red lines in relationships about the sorts of behaviors we're prepared to tolerate or not prepared to tolerate in a relationship. Then we move into navigating the boundaries with another person, navigating that space between what happens when I have personal boundaries and a strong sense of who I am, and then I'm entering into a relationship with someone who is equally clear about who they are and what they expect in a relationship. they have no idea and you sort of basically... um annex their life into your life. Right. And then we're starting to move into the territory of what happens when someone's boundaries are either too rigid or too flexible or potentially not 
in existence at all. And then there runs a risk in relationship of enmeshment of one person manipulating another person in a more malevolent fashion, or potentially just two people who end up having quite a turbulent relationship, maybe an argumentative relationship, because they're consistently bouncing up against those boundaries with one another and not necessarily a fundamental understanding of what to do when they do bounce up against those boundaries together. And one of the most important things to do when you are bouncing up against each other is actually to be conscious of this idea, because each of us has an idea of what is right, what is the boundary in a relationship. I mean, a very common one is that you should be sexually exclusive, but often these ones are not actually spoken about. Money is another one. Some people think everything should be split 50-50. Other people think the person who earns the most should pay the most. I mean, there's lots of different ways of cutting these things, but we don't really talk about them. So these are sort of unspoken boundaries, but each person's got a very clear idea of what they are, and they're fighting for their version of them. And so how do you actually make these boundaries more conscious? I think there's an important element of having organic discussions as those boundaries arise. So if we take a relatively mundane example, say a couple are fighting over emptying the dishwasher, a kind of classic couple argument, whose turn is it? Whose responsibility is it today? Understanding that that argument isn't necessarily about the dishwasher. It could be about a relationship expectation or a relationship boundary around cleanliness, around the importance. One person feels very strongly that to have a tidy house and to empty the dishwasher as soon as it's done is something that's important to them, whereas the other partner might think it's less important. It can wait till tomorrow. It's not that significant. Don't worry. You've been about listening it. to our arguments at <laughs> home, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> and understanding that that is a moment to have a broader, more meta conversation about the relationship, right? That that is an opportunity to say, this is important to me. And here's why it's important to me in a, in a relatively unapologetic way, but a non-accusatory way. So it's unlikely in many of these conversations that the other partner has done something fundamentally wrong, morally wrong, when the two people are having a, an argument. It might be just a small difference of perspective, a small difference of expectation in a relationship that more often than not need to be navigated within a relationship rather than fought against, because it's unlikely that couples are ever going to get to a position where these boundaries coalesce and they reach consensus on each of those conversations. And if you're stuck, go even deeper because the topic might not be about cleanliness. It might be something deeper like who's in charge or I feel that I'm doing more than you are. And they're actually not about those sort of kind of things. Now, Matt has said that he would like to join in at this point. So please, Matt. <laughs> I, I, I just wondered whether an example from parenting might be interesting as well, just to complement what we're mm. talking about. So I think if you think of the attunement between a parent and a child, often the assumption is the parent's in charge, the parent is showing the way, the parent is setting the boundaries. But if you think about a teenager perhaps coming back from school and announcing that they're hungry in a fierce voice, you know, you can see that school's taken their toll, that they feel overwhelmed in that moment. The kid's been with people all day, maybe her blood sugar's low. So maybe have a snack ready at that point. You know, maybe you've learned the hard way already that it's not the right time for questions and an inquisition. Now she needs some space. You know, now's the time for 
listening and now is not the time for objecting to her tone or teaching a lesson in manners or telling her that she's old enough to fix her own snack. So there may well be a moment later on in the week where it is time to say that you can fix your own food. Maybe you can fix something for the family as well. But there might also be that moment where you just go with it a bit. So I think that's another example of where we would probably have an idea of who's in charge, where the boundary line's set, but you might just want to flex that in the moment in response to something very specific. Now, there are certain kinds of people who are likely to have more problems with boundaries than others. And we're going to go into another topic that fits beside boundaries, and that is attachment theory. And we've got the right people here because Bowlby was the person who came up with the whole idea of attachment theory. So who's going to explain attachment theory to us and then how that might help us understand boundaries a little bit better? Matt, do you want to take this one or do you want me to? No, go for it. So attachment theory and Bowlby's fundamental ideas are based on his research and his understanding of how important the relationships with our primary caregivers are and the importance of what Bowlby described as a secure base in childhood, one that is not scary, one that is complementary to our need to both be protected by a caregiver and feel safe with a caregiver, safe enough that then we can go out into the world and explore the world, explore new experiences and new relationships out in the world, knowing that if we get scared, if we get overwhelmed, we can return to that secure base of the parent. So you often see this on trains. You'll see a small child will want to run down the corridor past the other people a certain sort of distance, and then they'll turn around and come back again. And they have enough security to know that if they run a few seats away from their parents, that the parents won't disappear or the parents won't get panicky or anything else. They've got a secure attachment. Exactly. And I often think of the child in the playground too, who occasionally will, at the top of the slide, look down just to check that their parents there, just to check that they're okay. They've got someone to look after them if the slide descent goes wrong, but that they then go down the slide. And I think that's the important thing that often gets missed in conversations about attachment theory. So concepts like the secure base get talked about quite often, but often we lose sight of that complementary system within us, that exploration system within us. And maybe we can come on to talking about that in relationships too, that it's not just about feeling safe with that person when you're with them physically, it's also metaphorically and psychologically having that internal sense of safety that allows us when we're on our own to go out into the world and have exciting new adventures and be more resilient as well in the face of difficult challenges. So we want a secure relationship, which I think probably about half the population have, but the other half have something else. So there are three variations of this, but we're going to focus on two of them. Perhaps you could tell us about those two. Yeah, so about the research suggests that about 60% of us have what is described as a secure attachment style, which is along the lines of what we've just been discussing, Andrew, the sense of balance between exploration and security. But the two main insecure styles where about 20, 15 to 20% of us will fall into each of these categories, each of these buckets. One is the anxious attachment style and one is the avoidant attachment style. So sometimes you'll find different terminology for those, but those are the descriptions that I prefer to 
to focus on because they describe the behavior quite succinctly and quite concisely. So the anxious attachment style is one that is, as you can imagine by the use of the word anxious, it's someone who doesn't fundamentally feel safe in themselves or in relationship, is fearful of rejection, and potentially overcompensates to that fear in a number of different ways. So if we think about boundaries, someone who is anxiously attached is much more likely to have inflexible boundaries, a very open a lack of boundaries. That means that they are bending towards the other person from a place of needing to people please, fundamentally needing to be loved, needing to be validated. And the way that they might learn to do that is to respond to what the other person needs from them rather than having a strong grounded sense of self. And so if you're responding to what the other person wants, you actually drop your boundaries. So you say, actually, for me, it's important that the dishwasher is cleaned, but actually to keep the peace, you know, you can leave it in there for three weeks, as far as I'm concerned, at the time you say that, so that you will compromise your boundaries to save the relationship or to save the moment between the two of you. I know Matt wants to come in, but I would go even further than that and say that the anxiously attached person might not even be aware in that moment that a boundary exists for themselves. So they're so focused on what the other person needs and wants in that moment that they might think it's normal and routine to just give the other person what they want. Yeah, that's a very good point because I'm suggesting that you're aware of this. Hopefully after listening to this podcast, if you are, <laughs> my number one tip is be aware of your boundaries all the time. So actually when you're having that argument and you're actually, for want of a better word, appeasing or people pleasing or giving in, be conscious that yes, a boundary has been crossed. Now it might only be a minor boundary like, for example, the dishwasher, but it might also be a very big boundary that is actually maybe a deal breaker for you, but you haven't allowed it to be a deal breaker. So, Matt, let's let's have your, your yeah, thoughts I, I on Yeah, I mean, I think actually you, you probably both covered them. I wanted to make the point that Graham was making and then the one that you've just made, that compromise isn't giving in. It's a different concept from that. And there may be a point where it is a deal breaker and you're checking out, you're saying it's too much. So if we move on from the example of the dishwasher onto something that's really important to you, you talked about like um, fidelity. For fidelity, example. great example. Yeah, exactly. What you mentioned back at the start of the podcast for some people, that idea that we would be faithful only to one person in a relationship necessarily be what they were wanting. Now, that's going to be something that's going to need a careful negotiation, but it's hard to see the compromise in those two positions. Somebody wants to hold to that dearly. Somebody doesn't feel the same way about it. There may well not be a compromise position to be achieved. So I think sometimes success is going our separate ways or agreeing to disagree. And we don't have to do that with accusations or by diminishing the other person, we could simply agree to disagree. So we've had the anxious um, attachment. And then at the other end, we have avoidant attachment. So explain to me what you mean by avoidant. So avoidant attachment is usefully thought of as a response to a lack of care and attention. So it's a survival response, really, that is about surviving on one's own and being responsible for your internal sense of security, that secure base that we were talking about a moment ago, on your own, rather than looking to other people to provide and support that needed internal base of security. So what that looks like, often in childhood, it looks like a independent, self-resourceful 
infant that we can sometimes make the mistake of thinking that child is absolutely fine. They're bounding off into nursery on their own. They're looking after themselves. And I think in our culture, particularly where we run the risk of saying that's brilliant, that's the outcome we want is for the child two, three, four years old to be responsible for themselves. What that can look like in adulthood and in relationship is someone with incredibly rigid boundaries, someone who says something along the lines of, well, I've said I'm sorry in an argument, that someone who doesn't even necessarily care about another person's boundaries. You might find that someone who has an avoidant attachment style rarely gets into relationships in the first place because they see the world as something they need to survive on their own. Or if they do get into relationships, it might be with someone who looks good on their arm, for example, rather than someone who fulfills them emotionally. So I think we need to mention the third one then, which is ambivalence. Yeah, often described as well as disorganized attachment, which is fundamentally about being trapped in an approach-avoid response. So often the result of quite scary, unpredictable, inconsistent caregiving and parenting at an early age. This is someone who, if you imagine someone wanting to move towards the object of love and security, but is also terrified of that parent, trapped in a place where to be in relationship is threatening, to be vulnerable is psychologically and physically threatening. So you can imagine that relationships in adulthood are incredibly difficult to navigate for this 5 to 10% of people in our population. So I think it's confession time. Um, Andrew, could I just yeah. could I just jump in and make a, a really quick point just around the pandemic, which I think brings those attachment styles alive potentially in a different kind of way. So I was thinking of uh, the emphasis that we've had during the pandemic on taking care of people and staying safe. And all of that is obviously necessary and fine. There's no problem with that. But it, sometimes I think that kind of discourse has missed out courage and resourcefulness and resilience, those kind of things that get us through tough times. So that kind of planning and ingenuity, the belief that you'll come through it. Human beings have been in peril since the beginning of time, after all. So there's something about a very attachment, a very anxious way of thinking about the world when we think about the pandemic. It naturally triggers that in many of us. But I think it's it's got the potential to uh, take us too far in the wrong direction if what we're talking about all the time is staying safe. It's Graham's point about the secure base. The point of the secure base is not necessarily to be only secure and to stay there. The point is to go off and explore and use that base for that purpose. And I guess you see it the other way with the avoidance style as well, that the mm. pandemic is so frightening that you see people's reaction to it. Well, it's not going to get me. I'm not getting involved in this. I don't need the vaccine. I don't need these public health measures around me. So you sort of, you can see a split of those two things playing out. And I guess the holy grail or the sweet spot is taking it seriously, playing your part in the public health regulations and also trying to live a bit as well be supportive for those around you and carry on having those moments of joy and fun even within the most difficult circumstances it's interesting boundaries and attachment they actually go through every topic you can think of so thank you very much for that so i think it's confession time i think we have to because people like to think of therapists as being terribly secure and <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, knowing it all. But my experience is people don't become therapists for no reason whatsoever. So what were your relationships 
with your primary caregivers and how has that impacted on your attachment style? So let's have <laughs> Matt first. Gosh, what a question. Great question. Good, <laughs> good, good, good for you. Um, you can probably judge my attachment style best by how I answer this. Um, not, not, not so much what I say as what I don't say. I think, to be perfectly honest, almost everybody that I know that gets into therapy gets into it because they've had an experience in their life that needed some kind of repair. And often the repair came through therapy. We're often um, veterans of therapy. We saw the value of therapy in our own lives. That's certainly my story. I went into therapy relatively young in my early 20s. And without being too dramatic about it, I would say it saved my life at that point in time. I come out of a very tempestuous relationship and I subsequently repeated a number of those tempestuous relationships as well. So therapy didn't sort me out straight away, but I think it kept me hanging on in there and it gave me some beginning of understanding of what I was like in a relationship and what I, what I brought to it. What was the pattern of your boundaries? So, so I think I was exactly what Graham's been describing in terms of avoidant. I was trying to keep people at bay most of the time, but I also wanted to go out and socialize. I wanted somebody on my arm and I wanted to be in fancy restaurants and go on nice holidays. So I didn't want to be alone during those 20s and 30s. I wanted to be with somebody, but I wanted to be with them in a very particular way. And if I, as we always inevitably do, ask for a bit more support or offer a bit more of myself, if there was any hint of that being uh, rejected or rebuffed, that was the thing that was very painful and difficult for me. And because of my temperament and personality style, that would tend to come out as aggression, as pushing people away, stepping right back rather than disappointment or connecting with the actual primary emotion. It's a sort of bloke's response, isn't it? They get angry when they're ashamed mm. or they're embarrassed or they feel awkward about something. They take it out in that kind of, you know, what we might think of as a sort of externalizing pattern. They get blind drunk. They have a tear up with somebody, whatever it might be. So when your boundaries were threatened, you got angry. Yeah, yeah, that's my, that was my uh, primary response. And what was interesting, I think, in my therapy journey is when you look at the anger and you sort of work that through a bit, it's like, oh, that's not it. That's not done. There's something else. <laughs> there's, there's something around sort of sadness and there's something about my ability to be vulnerable with somebody else and bear it when they can't meet me or they miss the moment or, you know, they need a second go at it. But that doesn't necessarily mean the termination of the relationship. It doesn't necessarily mean we have to end up in a big fight. It can be. In time, I learned that it was something that could be born but it but it took me a long while to learn that but unless you understand the boundaries you can't actually understand the behavior and then you can't actually understand what's underneath it so it really is one of the foundations for understanding yourself how you respond to boundaries isn't yeah, it yeah ab absolutely it is and i th and i think it's a lot to do with our early relationships and how they're shown to us how they're modeled and and the lessons we learn from those. So I don't think it necessarily manifests the same in everybody. There's something around what's innate in us that shapes the way we respond, but, but an awful lot to do with those kind of early relationships. So without disclosing the whole of my history, you can probably begin to imagine the kind of home that I grew up in. So it, it's one where you're not met and you're not understood. Your emotions are not accepted. They're not welcomed and they're not worked through in that way. The emotions are a bit terrifying, really, or we try and push them down or, or, or suppress them in some way. So, Graham, do you recognise this household or did you belong in a different one? 
a slightly different one. I just wanted to say that it's lovely to, I, I'm hearing more about Matt and understanding more about Matt in the, in the last five minutes than he's divulged <laughs> to me in the last 10 years of knowing him. So there's something there that speaks to that avoidance within him. I don't know whether that's going to be good or bad for our business partnership. I guess we'll, I guess we'll find out now that he's opened that. My suspicion is that you're going to be slightly different. Otherwise, two avoidant people together haven't really got much of a partnership, have they? Yeah, I'd I'd say there's definitely an avoidant part of me. But I guess what my story illustrates a little bit more clearly for me is the complexity and attachment theory, that we don't necessarily fit into nice, neat boxes like we were talking about previously, that I would suggest that one of my parents was more anxiously attached and one of my parents was more avoidantly attached in terms of their style. Yeah, hopefully they'll both listen to this podcast and I'll leave it up to them to do, to talk about and decide who was who in that partnership. But that meant that I think I really struggled with understanding both my sense of self, but also those boundaries as I was growing up. So I had a very strongly risk-averse avoidant part of me that fundamentally led me to the civil service before I retrained as a therapist. I wanted that security. I wanted someone, I wanted really rigid structures and responsibilities. I wanted to know my place in the world and I wanted that sense of security. But the anxious part of me that I inherited in that household, that people-pleasing part of me, meant that I had a number of really quite turbulent personal relationships in my 20s before I then did go into therapy like Matt to really understand why that was happening. I was someone who was relatively risk averse and relatively calm on the exterior, but had a very turbulent inner world that felt at threat if things didn't feel calm, if things didn't feel like they were going in the right direction in a relationship. And I think that more anxiously attached part of me meant that in romantic relationships, particularly, I think I was the victim of some quite pretty abusive behavior on the receiving end of that. Because you lowered your boundaries and that's what happens in abusive relationships. A boundary is forever being crossed, isn't it? Right. And you can be on the receiving end of some behavior that in the cold light of day, you you might question for a moment, but then narrate within yourself that this is okay. This is what couples do. Couples argue, right? So it's okay to call each other names and to shout and scream at each other and occasionally throw things. And for certain couples, that genuinely might be survivable. It might be that they can navigate through that. But I think I told myself that this is what I had to tolerate to be cared about fundamentally. And I think I needed some external help through therapy and other means, other relationships to help me challenge that within myself. So how do we recognise if our boundaries are being crossed? So I think there's two main buckets that these principles can apply to. One of the buckets is our internal state. So do we even have that sense of self to begin with? Do we know who we are? And if the answer to that question is a, is a big no, then I think we understand that we're at risk of our boundaries being crossed. In terms of how we know whether our boundaries have been crossed, I think internally there's that sense of emotional and physical fatigue that we might be faced with. If we're constantly responding to other people and other people's needs and other people's demands about their boundaries, then we're likely to be pretty pretty emotionally and physically overwhelmed and tired. I think for the more avoidant, uh, style of attachment. 
there's something about anger and irritation. If someone is coming close to those very rigid boundaries that we have and still pushing at them and still trying to cross them, we're likely to get quite upset and quite angry. And I think that does apply to the more anxiously attached of us too. But I think particularly if you're someone with a more avoidance style, you're likely to respond to a boundary violation with a sense of injustice and anger and irritation. Then the second bucket is more in that interpersonal space. How do you know that a boundary is being crossed regularly? And just going back to my personal story, I think you know that boundaries are being crossed when relationships are very turbulent. If you're arguing consistently without any sense of understanding the other, really moving towards a place where in the in the rubble or and the dust in the days after of those arguments, you're genuinely seeking to understand what the person is saying to you and cares about. If that's not happening, if you're just repeating the same arguments and shouting at each other or or retreating into that more avoidant, stony-faced, internal world of silence and brooding, then it's a sign that you're regularly crossing one another's boundaries. And I think this is harder to spot, but is actually equally important. We have to spot when we're crossing over other people's boundaries. And I think we're nowhere near as good at actually doing that. So Matt, perhaps you'd like to give us some hints and clues about when we're actually crossing into other people's lives and we're not respecting their boundaries. Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's incredibly hard to do. I think particularly when you're around somebody, you know, pandemic is another example of where we've all been around one another rather too much and probably transgressed boundaries that we hadn't in the past. And knowing where you stop, where somebody else start is really a skill. I'm not sure there's a silver bullet for that, but my own sort of practice, what's helped me, I think has been the kind of idea of mindfulness, which can be a bit overdone and is rolled out as the solution for everything over the last few years. But I think the basic principle of that, that we are attuned, that we are aware, that we care about those things, that we give those things time and attention and thought and we reflect on them are all critically important. I think if you're not doing those things and you're not doing those things with some determination, you're probably not in a relationship with somebody who is respecting your boundaries or thinking about what you need or what you want. I think there are two sides of it. Again, where are you transgressing and where are you missing things that that other person wants in terms of excitement and to be delighted and surprised? So then we can fall into routines and habits very, very easily. And I think the best way to avoid doing that is to have it uppermost on our mind. I think relationships really genuinely do take work. And I think that's what I see when I see couples, they sometimes don't want to do the work. Everybody wants to be a millionaire. Nobody wants to become a millionaire. You know, there is actually a process to go through to get to the good stuff. I quite like some of the ideas from sports science and sports psychology around mindfulness. So I don't think it's necessarily sitting on a mat or a cushion at the start of the day for a period of time. I think some of the most interesting ideas I've found come from sports psychology. There's a guy called uh, George Mumford in the US who has written a book called The Mindful Athlete. And he talks about mindfulness in a kind of athletic form, but particularly in basketball, you sort of see that idea. So it's, it's not about sitting still and doing your 20 minutes, half an hour meditation. It's about noticing the things in the kind of heat play in the actual moment. It's hard as well, I think would be my <laughs> sign off comment. 
And we'll put the details of that book by George Mumford. Again, it was called... It's called The Mindful Athlete. So it's really about how mindfulness works in athletics and elite sports. So when things are frenetic and kinetic and moving very, very quickly, how do you stay mindful in those sort of circumstances? I think it's quite a nice read across to life because we can easily do our half an hour meditation and that can, you know, we can kid ourselves we're doing something around mindfulness practice, but then we can be completely disrespectful and disregarding of our partner's need. I often find that the key to knowing if you've got poor boundaries is if you feel that you should rescue or you feel responsible for your partner. Now, I know the the myth is, you know, I love you and I'll go to the end of the world for you. That's a nice myth, but it doesn't work particularly well in practice because you tend to get really upset with them because you think, oh my God, I've got all my own problems and I've got all of these coming along as well. So I have couples that I teach this sort of uh, prayer to, and I will share it because I think it's a good one of illustrating this. I am me and you are you. It's a miracle we've found each other, but I'm responsible for my feelings and you're responsible for your feelings. Because what often happens when people feel responsible for the other person's feelings is they try and cut them down to smaller size and try and minimize them to make it easier for them to deal with, which obviously makes sense. But the other person doesn't like their feelings being minimized and they sort of play up and then you get what we call as therapists enmeshed. We don't know Mm. where one person begins and the other one ends. So that prayer is quite useful. I'll put that in the show notes as well. I am me, you are you. It's a miracle we've found each other, but I'm responsible for my feelings and you're responsible for yours. So if you're angry, it's not my job to make you less angry. All I have to do is listen to your anger. That's all you have to do. You don't retreat away. You don't say, I'm not interested. You just have to witness them. You don't have to solve them. You don't have to rescue them. The minute you feel you're rescuing or you're waiting to be rescued, we know that there are boundary issues there. Yeah, it's very nice. There's a lovely poem by Gibran, which you probably know on marriage, and he he talks about similar kind of ideas. I was just Googling it as we were talking. and Well, maybe I'll read a couple of lines to see if you sort of get the idea. Let there be space in your togetherness. Let the winds of the heavens dance between you. Love one another, but not make a bond of love, let it rather be a moving sea between the shores of your souls, that kind of idea that you're uh, fill each other's cup, but drink not from one cup. I think there's such a lot of nonsense talked about love in popular culture. And I think the verse you were referring to and that the kind of idea that's in Gibran's poem is sort of closer to what it means to love, just to have some kind of distance. The, The final line of that poem is for the pillars of the temple stand apart and the oak tree and the cypress tree grow not in each other's shadow. And that that seems to me to hold some of the idea of that you were talking about. And it seems quite arresting when I put those kind of similar ideas to couples as well, that it's not all, um, can we swear on this podcast? Yes, as long as it's as long as it's not a terrible swear word. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was—I'll rephrase it. it. It's just not all—it's not always all delightful, and you need some space and you need a recognition that you're going to irritate one another sometimes, and it's okay to let one another down. If you're doing that all the time, the relationship's probably not uh, satisfying. But if you're doing that from time to time, well, welcome to the real world. So I think that boundaries become more complex when we're dealing with children because, you know, we're two adults or we're three adults here together. You know, you're responsible for your stuff. I'm responsible for my stuff. That's fairly simple. But with children, this becomes more complicated. So Matt, how do you 
how do you deal with boundaries for children? Because you don't want to march all over your children's boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but ultimately, you know, you're in charge. So yeah. how do you balance those two things? Yeah, I think this is the hardest in some ways. My um, wife and I refer to our children as living Zen masters because they're just always, <laughs> always teaching you and not necessarily in the way you want or at the times of day you want. It's messy, isn't it? I think it's really... It's really messy. I, I think it's John Kabat-Zinn who says, uh, having children is asking for trouble. Uh, the title of his book is The Full Catastrophe, and it's sort of taken from uh, Zorba the Greek, who says, I've got wife, house, kids, the full catastrophe. And I think that's how it, <laughs> how it can feel sometimes. Um, so, so I think there's a bit of ease in that. I think there's a bit of just knowing that, you know, I, I don't say those things to be particularly flippant. I think it is knowing that this is a hard job that we've got when we parent and that, that it will go wrong. I think, again, if you look at athletics, so much of that elite sport goes wrong. It used to be a great clip on, um, was it, they think it's all over the Badil and Skinner thing where Pele misses an open goal. And I think that's the truth of elite sports. You know, elite sportsmen screw up all the time. And we'll do that even if we are actually elite parents. You're going to get an awful lot wrong. So I think that's the first thing I would bake in and price in. So what have your children taught you about boundaries? I think they've taught me essentially to lower mine. So I think the most successes I have as a parent is when I stop and listen to them and work out why they're freaking out. My grown-up daughter, I've got two young boys who are five and seven, and particularly thinking about my parenting now with the five and seven-year-old, it's unfathomable what motivates them or what disappoints them or why they're behaving in the way they are on the face of it until you stop and slow down. And if I'm in a rush and I'm preparing food and I'm on a schedule and I've got work to do and I've got some emails to answer, I've got clients coming, that's when it goes wrong. I think when I don't have the time, when I stop and I kind of melt into their world and ask them about those things, often there is an answer in there. Sometimes it might take a while to come. Sometimes you might not get it instantly. But that tuning in, that moment of attunement has been really important to me and respectfully asking them to talk about what it is that's going on for them. And I think it will reveal itself, not perfectly, not all the time, not straight away, but that there's really been something about just understanding the world from there point of view rather than rushing them through it and saying you'll be fine or don't say that don't talk to your brother like that well the brother is annoying them you know and they do have very very strong feelings about it so my boundary in that situation is you mustn't ever say anything hurtful or wounding to your brother you mustn't say you hate your brother but of course they hate one another at times you know and they're exploring that feeling and in due course, it will moderate. They'll understand that their brother brings joy to them, is a companion to them, is loyal to them, and is irritating and takes some of mum and dad's attention and other bits of good stuff in the world go to them and that, and they'll bear with that. But right now at five and seven, they hate one another, you know, and, and they clash and they clash hard. And, and some of it for me has been, okay, let's bear with that. Let's, let's see what's going on. Let's try and understand this. And by listening to them and actually respecting their views, you are to an extent respecting their boundary, their integrity as a person. Absolutely that, right. Yeah. That, yeah. that they are a whole person rather Absolutely. than somebody that you can sort of 
reach into their brain and program them. Yeah, re- yeah, really, really well put. I, I completely agree with that statement. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn has a kind of idea of sovereignty, which is just a different way of saying what you've said, that they are a sovereign person in their, in their own right. And I think that's hard to recognize when they're teeny tiny and, you know, they can't tie up their own shoelaces and do those kinds of things. But even at five and seven, they are... They are people. Absolutely. They? Yeah, they are. Yeah. And uh, Alison Gopnik has this lovely phrase. I think it's the title of her book, um, The Gardener, Not the Carpenter. I might have mangled that. But, but the idea is that you're a gardener. You can water the seed, but the seed is the seed and it will do what it does. You can screw it up. You mm. can fail to create the conditions under which it will thrive. But all you really need to do is water the seed and you're not a carpenter. You can't just determine to make a chair or a set of shelves out of your child that's the wrong way of thinking about things but it is a temptation and i think i see it a lot of the time parents being quite forceful quite pushy with their children someone said the other day that overscheduling is the new form of neglect in parenting you know i see people absolutely hammering their kids to learn this do that lots of extracurricular activities maybe just let them be like you're saying andrew let them be the person they are The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. One of the advantages of becoming a supporter of The Meaningful Life is you get a chance to write in and you get the wisdom of my guests and myself. I'm not quite certain how giving advice, whether that's crossing boundaries or not, we'll think about that (laughs) in a moment. And here is one I've been sent. It was torture knowing my husband was having an affair and not being able to prove it. He knew I was suffering from the things I did find out, yet he continued to see this woman. He's never been one to say, I love you, and he said it to her. Oh, the things he said to her have wounded me in my soul. When I could finally prove everything, I found incriminating texts and purchases that were not for me, he just shut down or went on the attack. He has blamed me from the beginning. I want so badly to forgive for myself, if nothing else. I think him blaming me for his actions greatly decreased the chances of me being able to forgive and heal. After the first week and exactly two sorries, he became silent and brooding. Then he refused to speak about anything personal and starts fights with me at any chance so he can escape and withdraw. It adds to the bitterness for me towards him. I feel he should be doing most of the heavy lifting to make this right for me. So, is us giving advice and talking about this crossing boundaries? I don't think it is crossing a boundary unless a therapist moves into a position of telling a client in this sort of position exactly what to do. We can provide advice in terms of how they might approach such a situation. I think a lot of the time therapists rely on the empathetic, sympathetic response. That must feel awful. That must be incredibly difficult. But I do think that often our clients are looking to us to advise them gently about the various ways they could approach their response to this sort of situation and look to us to work through some of those options with them to help them understand which one works for them in terms of their own personal growth and fundamentally what they've come to therapy in the first place for. 
And we have been invited to talk about this by them writing in. It's not mm. like we've actually approached somebody on the streets and said, look, you know, the way your husband is speaking to you, I don't think is acceptable. We have actually been invited into this one. So I think there's quite a lot of boundaries being crossed here. Who's going to go first? Let's have Matt. What boundaries do you think are being crossed here that we need to be aware of and would help this person to think about this in a slightly different way? Yeah, I mean, goodness, where to start? I mean, it, it feels like that's absolutely the case. Those boundaries have been, they've not just been crossed, they've sort of been mm. obliterated, haven't they? Um, and then reset somewhere else almost. Yes. Know, I'm, I'm allowed to have any relationships I like outside the relationship, but you're not allowed to have any conversation with me. So we've got a very loose boundary to the rest of the world and a very high and tight boundary to the partner. Yeah. yeah, I agree. A great example of somebody saying, sorry, not sorry, isn't it? Or the example that Graham gave earlier, you know, that I've already said sorry. I've said it twice. Like, what more could you possibly want from me? I mean, it's, it's one of these interesting examples where you know only a fragment of what's gone on, but on the face of it, there are some signs there, statement of the obvious that that relationship's in trouble and it doesn't feel easy to think about a way back from that because i think when somebody's done that to your boundaries treated you in that unkind way and then won't engage with you it's sort of a double boundary violation as i think you're saying i wonder however how much opportunity the listener to your podcast andrew has had to really force her husband i'm assuming it's a woman who's written in so correct me if i'm wrong but for almost yeah. force her husband to confront how much of a boundary breach this really is and how much pain and heartache and hurt it's caused. It sounds, given his response, that he's very much from the avoidant side of the spectrum as we were talking about attachment a little while ago, that he is probably retreating into that really quite rigid bubble of his self-existence. And for him to be in relationship with her, continue sustained relationship with her, he's going to have to move to a place where he is understanding more of the hurt that he's caused and then taking the even harder step of understanding how to make amends for that boundary breach. And so what people do when they feel there's a problem is they blame somebody else. And this is what we're getting here, which is a sort of boundary infringement, isn't it? What do you do if somebody's blaming you for something? How do you deal with that? How should she deal with the fact that here's the, 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 I, I have cushions in my therapy office and I sometimes say, you know, here's the cushion of blame. You're just being given that. What do you do with this cushion of blame? I see Matt in the background has got a couple of nice cushions. So we can imagine, <laughs> we can imagine there's a cushion of blame that he's just thrown in our direction. What do we do, Graham? I think it depends on the size of the boundary breach fundamentally. I think if someone has caused a boundary breach of this size, the emotional, physical, sexual boundary breach, I think the moment to then respond to an accusation of blame coming in your direction, it's not that moment to respond with interest as to why you're being blamed. I think the responsibility in the case we're talking about lies with the individual who has caused that boundary breach to try and move back towards the person that they have hurt. I think there might be a moment if that happens for the two of them to then work together on what's happened before the affair takes place, right? That there is a potential for self-reflection in the writer of the letter to think with her husband about 
I think that we're living in cloud cuckoo land if they're <laughs> going to sit there and reflect on that. I mean, I no, think certainly not need... straight away. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, but I think what this person needs is help now. And just because somebody throws the pillow of blame at you doesn't mean you have to pick it up and hold it close to you and sort yes. of feel in some sense that though there is even a small amount of truth in it. This is actually them trying to deal with the painful feelings in themselves. They can't cope with them, so they throw them at you. Just because somebody gives you the cushion of blame doesn't mean you have to hold on to it. You just drop it to the floor. I'm just not interested in the fact that you think it's all my fault. It's I think just, that's right. I'd add that you don't need to throw it back in their direction either. So no, I just, wasn't throwing it back. I was dropping it on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, th there is a temptation to get your own thing and throw yeah. a pillow back, your right. own blame. You know, yeah. you've ruined my life, and we just end up throwing pillows at each other. But, um, but that's what you see, isn't it? And that's what you see when children are involved. And I think that, for me, is where the work is most difficult and heartbreaking as well, because it, dropping it on the floor is actually a, an elite skill. But let's aim for elite skill yeah, because you have to be conscious just because somebody's blamed you for something, you don't have to defend yourself and engage with it. No. You can say, I don't agree. Now, what are we going to do about A, or B, or C, which are the practical things that you need to do? Mm. You know, you see it that way, I see it that way, but we still have to decide what we're going to do with this relationship. Are we going to go on or not? Yeah. And if we are, what shape is this relationship going to be? You can have that discussion only if you let the pillow drop. Yeah, and I, and I think statement of the obvious, you can only truthfully have that conversation if the other person is there listening to what you've just said, Andrew. I think it's compelling. But if you haven't got a listener, then you're yeah. talking to yourself, aren't you? And, yeah. and that might be the stage of the journey. It might be that actually it is now a solo journey. You know, But um, even if it is a solo journey, you don't have to pick up the pillow of blame when you walk out the door with you as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think there's some reframing, isn't there? If we were thinking less about uh, advice on the back of that correspondence and more about what we might do in sessions, we might be looking to reframe some of the way in which the uh, listener is thinking about those issues and whether she needs to hug it close and feel as viscerally about it as she does at this moment in time. But there is also something about those sort of stages of grief and mourning, which I think is the analogy for when a relationship ends. There is an overwhelm at first. It's such a shocking moment. You can't believe the person has gone in grief. And there is some bearing with that that will change and it will move in time, but it won't move quickly. And it's hard to hasten it. If you think about grief, you're sort of allowing it to roll over you rather than it's a bearing with rather than a, an active thing that you can do very much about. I think some of it is just you're in an awful point in life right now. And that's going to be the case for X number of weeks, months, and, you know, hopefully not longer. And is this correspondent, this woman, is she in some ways breaking over to his boundaries? Because there is an element of I can't forgive because of what he's doing, that uh, I'm not in charge of my feelings because I can't heal because he's not helping me to heal. Is she expecting to be rescued in some sense and in, in that sense expecting something from him that would be crossing his boundaries? I think potentially. I think there's enough evidence in that little snippet of correspondence that we've had that she is someone who is more of a people pleaser, more coming from that anxious end of the spectrum and more looking for a response in him to feel 
a sense of security in the relationship, which is natural to some degree, but the, the idea that she describes what she's going through as torture in trying to deal with his response, his response into that silent brooding position is causing immense pain for her, which is why I was just gently encouraging some sense of courage and resilience in that anxious place to articulate the pain and say, from my perspective, this is how I feel. I don't want you to rescue me. I don't want you to make it all right necessarily. But the starting point is you have to understand what boundary you've breached of mine. And you need to think about your self-care. What can mm. you do to mm. feel better now? He's not going to help, so let's move him to one side. Mm. What can you do to help yourself feel better today? What support do you need? How can you get it? How can you cope with this situation? Because unfortunately, he's not available to help you. So the person who is available to help you is you. So, mm. you know, writing to us has been one step forward on that. I hope that's been useful. So, as I've invited you both here to be witnesses on what makes life meaningful, um, <laughs> I think I have to turn the spotlight on you to ask what makes your life meaningful. Let's have Matt first. Thanks. thanks. I, was, I was jumped in over the boundary just before you invited me. In. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess I don't know whether I'm looking so much for the, the meaning of life as to have a kind of deep experience of it, I think. I think it's a really interesting question, and it's, it's taken up, I think, rather too much of my life wondering what the meaning of life is. I sort of quite like the way Tara Brack rephrases that or translates that kind of question, what's the meaning of life into what matters most? And I think one is a kind of intellectual question that I've certainly found that I could never answer. But the, the other question, what matters most, I think possibly can be answered. And I, and I think for me, it, it sounds a bit twee, but I think it's to love fully, you know, to, to really give the most I can give and to be on the lookout for what I can receive from others, which has been you know, just to come back to my story, that's been the challenge, you know, are, are others there for me? Can I receive from them? And can I, can I love them fully in all of their imperfections? Can you love and can you receive and still respect boundaries? Because yeah. it's really easy to say, I love you so much, therefore I can now tell you what to do. Um, <laughs> I've given you so much, then, uh, you know, I've received so much, then therefore you have rights yeah. and the boundaries get crossed. So these words of giving, receiving, we do need to think about them within the context of boundaries. Yeah, abs absolutely. And I, and I think it is more on the giving side I've found as I, I sort of reached this point in my life where the rewards are. So I think I've, I've spent certainly the first half of my life trying to receive and think about what I can get rather than what I can give, whether that's been at work or whether that's been in, um, you know, romantic sexual relationships. It's been more on the what's in this for me? What can I gain from it? And, Latterly, I think the truth lies in what I can give, and there's actually enormous, you know, paradoxically, there's enormous satisfaction in the in the giving, in the idea of service to others. So, without being too po-faced about that, I think that's where the emphasis lies. Often in relationships, couples that come to therapy are looking to what they can get rather than what they can give. They're looking for the other person to change first or make the first move, and often the truth of a resolution lies the other way around. What what can you do? What what step can you take? My favourite question in th couple therapy is always, what can you do differently? Yeah. So, Graham, what makes your life meaningful? Well, I resonate with a lot of what Matt was talking about. And I know 
Andrew, that you're a fan of the Jungian analyst James Hollis. And I think Matt was touching on one of his key concepts around the first half of life being much more about our ego and sense of self, not necessarily a pejorative sense, but in, in defining who we are so that we do understand where our boundaries are, what we want in relationships, what we want in work, what we want in life. But that at some point, hopefully around midlife, and I'm 42, feels like this is about the sort of time where I am getting much more interested in the life outside of myself, life in the community, life in my therapeutic relationships as well. It gives a great sense of satisfaction for me. And if we move towards growth, personal growth, personal satisfaction, and away from that sort of short-term hedonism and ego inflation of our early life. I think that's what makes life meaningful for me, even if I bulk a little bit at the word meaningful, a little bit similarly to Matt. Let me give you an example, if we have time in my personal life, about how that is live for me right now. I've relatively recently moved from Southeast London to rural Norfolk. And It's wonderful. It's beautiful here. It gives me a great sense of space as well. And one of the aspects I am considering is getting a dog. I know, Andrew, you're a dog lover, I believe, as well. So, oh my gosh, you've done your research. If you can help me with this, with this dilemma, I'd appreciate it. But instinctively, when I think about getting a dog, that short-term hedonistic part of me, the ego part of me, kicks in and thinks. I don't want to get up at 6am on a cold January morning. (laughs) The introverted part of me doesn't necessarily want to interact with individuals in my community at 6am when it's dark and cold. I just want to stick my headphones in and, and walk and walk. So there's a significant part of that ego sense of self that makes me think, don't get a dog. It's going to be hard work. But fundamentally, it's the decision about longer term increase in love and connection and life satisfaction that probably in many situations in the years to come, I'll regret having a dog in the day-to-day aspect of having it. But in a similar way to having a family, having sustainable relationships, yes, they can be hard day-to-day. They involve a significant amount of work and emotional turbulence, but we appreciate those things because they bring value and love to our lives. Well, all I would say is if you live in the countryside, the reality of a dog, if they want to go out at six o'clock in the morning, you just open the back door and let them into the garden. (laughs) You don't have to go out and interact with people. But (laughs) if you've just arrived in a village, there's two ways. I used to live in a village. There's two ways to enter a village. You either have children at the school or you have a dog or you don't belong in the village. Those are the three (laughs) choices. (laughs) One of the things I'm trying to do is to save the community pub. So that's another, maybe that's a third, more novel way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, but um, you can take your dog to the pub and you'll always have somebody to talk to because they will always come up to you and start talking because a dog actually is a way through to connect with people. Mm. That uh, if we're talking about Jungian ideas, what does the dog symbolize for you? Oh, crikey. <laughs> escape, I, mean, I guess. Escape and uh, un- undivided love, unconditional love. So, thank you for being my guests on the podcast today. This is where the podcast ends for most people. But if you're a supporter, well, we've got some more information coming. We're going to find out the three things that Matt and Graham know deep down to be true. We're also going to look back at the podcast and see what we've actually learned as well. So if you want to find out all of that, here's details of how to become a supporter. 
You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.